Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, this is Audiophiles. I'm your host, Nicholas Magrino. On this episode, we'll hear three stories all centered around accessibility. We'll be hearing from one of New York's fastest triathletes. I count my strokes when I open water swim just to get a sense of time going by. There's a lot of mental gymnastics that you do to keep yourself engaged and not go crazy. (laughs) To Jamaica, Queens, where there is an exhibit that raises questions about touching art. I think the freedom to touch is important. The urge to touch is a different thing. Then we'll go on a tour to learn how some members of the Crown Heights neighborhood are combating hate. We had Mormons from Brigham Young University. We had Muslims from Lebanon, you name it. And they came into the synagogue. They came into our house. They came into the scribe. We showed them the ritual bath. And every day we got together and you got to see the best side of human beings. And we'll hear what legendary investigative reporter Tom Robbins thinks about the future of journalism. Uh, When I worked there, uh, people waiting to place their ads in the paper. And that line just completely disappeared. All that and more here on Audiophiles. First up is Christian Nazario with the news. Thanks, Nick. First up for national news, North Carolina Congressman Patrick McHenry will assume temporary speakership of the House of Representatives after Kevin McCarthy was ousted in an unprecedented vote by his own party members yesterday. McHenry was picked from a list McCarthy kept in reserve. He will serve until the chambers figure out who will be the next leader. McCarthy was taken out after eight Republicans joined House Democrats to oust McCarthy, an effort led by Florida Congressman Matt Gates. Then, in international news, Pope Francis is issuing a reminder about climate change. Francis wrote, The world in which we live is collapsing and may be nearing the breaking point. Francis pleaded his case in a letter to the U.S. Congress and the United Nations. The Pope expressed hope that those participating in the United Nations Climate Change Conference would see the effects the crisis is having on issues like health care, housing, and migration. The summit will start in the United Arab Emirates at the end of November. And, for New Yorkers, Mayor Eric Adams wants a judge to suspend the city's landmark right-to-shelter rules that have been in place for decades. The rules require the city to provide the shelter to anyone who requests it. The move comes as a surge of migrants from around the world continues to flood the city's shelter system. Lawyers for the city call the rules cumbersome and outmooted. Advocates say that dismantling the rules will impact far more people than just asylum seekers. A spokesperson from the Legal Aid Society called it shameful. More than 100 family members also are gathering to remember local environment activist Ryan Carson. Carson was stabbed to death while outside with his girlfriend on Sunday. Police say they are still searching for a man who was menacing the two at a bus stop in Crown Heights. New York Public Interest Research Group says Carson was working for them in a variety of positions. They call him a creative, talented, relentless, and upbeat advocate. Also today, we're looking at unseasonably high warm weather, 80 degrees throughout the day with light wind gusts. That's all for the newscast. I'm Christian Azario. Thanks, Christian. The criminal trial of former CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, Samuel Bankman-Fried, is underway in Manhattan's federal court. Bankman-Fried faces a slew of wire fraud and conspiracy charges. FTX was once one of the largest digital currency exchange platforms for buying and selling cryptocurrencies. That was until an article published by Coindesk revealed that customer funds went to accounts controlled by Alameda Research, a cryptocurrency trading firm in Hong Kong, instead of FTX, which is also owned by Bankman-Fried. Jury selection for the trial started on Tuesday, October 3rd. Freelance reporter Nick Morgan has been following the FTX case closely, and he brings us these updates from inside the courtroom. Nick, welcome to Audiophiles. Pleasure to be here, Nick. So, what was the first day of the trial like? What happened? 
So the first day of the trial essentially is going to boil down to the government and the defense issuing their opening statements where they're going to set the tone for the rest of the case. The government's, the government's looking to essentially show the intent behind uh, what went on in FTX was a fraud from the beginning, that Sam Bankman Freed, who became a billionaire before he was 30 and he rubbed elbows with the, power, with the rich and the powerful to promote his brand, that he was using customer funds to pursue his own ends and that he was making these risky bets that put all of the, the customers' crypto at risk. The defense, for their part, is going to argue that SBF was misled by his inner members of his inner circle, some of whom are now cooperating with the prosecution, that FTX itself was running as a legitimate business that essentially fell on bad times. So that's the gist of what's going to be going on with this case going forward. So Sam Bankman-Fried is facing up to 155 years in prison. What is the significance of this trial for the cryptocurrency space? So when FTX collapsed, it was the single largest catastrophe in many ways to hit the cryptocurrency industry because it annihilated the reputation that many companies were trying to build as this space was developing as somewhere where people can buy and trade cryptocurrency and that their assets would be safe in the hands of these cryptocurrency companies like FTX, Coinbase, and so on. Obviously, you have a huge difference between a company like FTX where you had all these questionable practices going on that put client funds at risk and ones like Coinbase, who's a publicly traded company that hasn't run into this this kind of trouble. But the reputation is in tatters, even almost a year after what happened to FTX. But the other aspect of it is when it comes to the regulations that are going to come afterwards, because the government was, even if they're now prosecuting the case now, there's a lot of criticism in the cryptocurrency industry that the government did not do enough to protect consumers sooner. And now they're overreacting by trying to penalize firms that are trying their best to follow what they say is an unclear set of rules. So what FTX really did was it undermined the image of the cryptocurrency industry by making them look like they're thieves and they're irresponsible and they're reckless. But then it also opened up the the big door to what comes next. How do we regulate cryptocurrency the way that we regulate other forms of finance? And those questions are still – they're still waiting for answers. They're still developing as we speak. Right. So as many of us know, cryptocurrency has become such a huge thing. Does this trial mark the beginning of the end for the cryptocurrency boom or is it the start of a new era instead? Not at all. It does not mark the end of what's going on in crypto because you still have a lot of companies and developers who are working on new applications to develop the space. In many ways, you can argue that cryptocurrency is itself changing and it's becoming less about cryptocurrency itself and more about the crypto technologies that underlie Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on, the kind of like apps that you can make from it, the kind of payment systems that you can make from it, improving the way that payments are processed between different companies and individuals. The, the whole industry is changing where you're going to have the segmentation of digital assets connected to Bitcoin and other um, cryptocurrencies on the one hand, but then these new applications that developers are working on now. But then it also, as we talked about just before, we still have the open question about how are we going to regulate this space going forward. There is absolutely a lot of issues when it comes to the, to the way that we handle this. There are criminals who, who hack into these crypto companies and they steal 
customers' money, and then the companies end up having to sort that out, or in some cases, they don't, and then they fail. But then on top of it, too, it's if this space is going to be continuing to maturing and you want to get the most out of the growth that can come with it, all the ben- maximize the benefits, then you need the right rules and regulations here in the United States to really make sense of how they can how they can operate safely in the way that you're seeing in other jurisdictions around the world. Right. So really quickly, please, uh, what can we expect to see next with this trial? So what we can see next is a few things. One of them is going to be establishing what Sam Bankman-Fried's intent was when it came to FTX. As I mentioned in the beginning, his lawyers are going to try to argue that he was misled by those around him. And some of these witnesses that that the government is going to call, they're members of Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle. So it's going to be a back and forth debate between prosecutors and the defense to really see whether or not Sam was a fraud from the beginning, whether he wh- whether he meant to defraud people, and whether or not um, more could have been done to stop him sooner. And for the defense to really try to acquit Sam Bankman-Fried, they're going to have to prove that they're going to undermine the government's witnesses going forward. And I could promise you there's going to be a lot of drama in the next couple of weeks to come. All right. Thank you so much, Nick. Nick Morgan is a freelance reporter and a master's candidate at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. For more of his work, follow him on Instagram at Nick, N-I-K, Morgan underscore 015. You're listening to Audio Files from the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. When people think of the art scene in New York City, they probably imagine something like the Steps of the Met or the Galleries in Chelsea. But no one really thinks of Jamaica, Queens. But there is art in Jamaica. Lots of it. And what's more, you can touch it. Reporter Sajina Suresta attended the opening of a new interactive exhibit inside the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning and has this to report. Interactive exhibits are nothing new to New York. You've probably seen someone jumping into a colorful ball pit on Instagram or one of those subway ads for the Museum of Sex. These places are usually located somewhere in Manhattan and come with rooms where you can take the perfect shot for your social media. But at the You Feel Me exhibit, there's more than just pretty rooms for pretty pictures. The artists there want you to have a more hands-on approach, literally. It's smooth. I think I was expecting more ridges. I was, with all the detail, I think I was expecting something that felt more rough. But I guess him keeping himself honest is, is more of a peaceful journey than I thought it would be. <laughs> That's Tamika Cameron. She's at the exhibition opening, touching one of the pieces. And as she presses on the canvas, trying to feel a ridge, no one tries to stop her. This art show was made to touch, and there is a lot of mediums to choose from. My artwork is acrylic as my main base, but I also use popsicle sticks, um, pom-pom balls, googly eyes, black gesso. All tufted by, uh, by gun, gun tufted, I guess. Um, and then the other pieces include plushies. Mostly worked with fabric and also like some mixed media. So you'll see some plastic in here and like packaging. That last voice is Juliana Castaneda a Brooklyn-based artist. They talk a lot about upcycling in their artwork. One of their pieces is 12 feet tall and completely covers one of the gallery walls. And it has a lot going on. 
it, it challenges people to think about what they do with their trash, basically. So you'll see it at the beginning of the piece is kind of all this trash, and then it kind of, in a way, gets like repurposed. So there's like wrappers, plastic, um, beads, like you'll see like banana packaging or like uh, medication packaging, just things that like I regularly use. Castaneda's work invites audience participation. It thrives on the element of touch. The more senses that people can simulate when viewing art, the better. At least that's how I like to view art. Like if I'm looking at it, that's cool. But if I can like touch it or smell it or hear it, it's much more interesting to me. Maya Nicole created an art piece specifically for this exhibit. Her canvas has three heads, or four. It all depends on how you count the facial features. And you can even see drips of water going all over the faces that are coming from the popsicle sticks that have been placed all around the piece and they have been painted black but then covered again with like these explosions of light orange and fuchsia and pink and glitter and they kind of look like little bombs that are dropping. And although touches all the rave at this exhibit, it's still somewhat controversial in other art spaces. Heaven Wong enjoys the art scene in New York. For her, this opening had a completely different vibe. I usually go to galleries like over in Chelsea and you know, you're not allowed to touch the stuff. I touched the thing one time and I, I got, you know, everybody looked at me and, they, and it was very embarrassing. But then one lady was like, well, that's art. That's what you're supposed to do. You know, and I, it's so glad that you can come here. You know, you got your little glove. But the concept of touching the art is still new and perhaps counterintuitive to some. Like Cuthbert Ayo Onikute. He lives in the neighborhood and is here to support his artist friend. I think the freedom to touch is important. The urge to touch is a different thing. I am free to touch, and I'm fine with that. But nothing here, I don't feel like I need to feel anything, excusing the pun. But like, I don't, I don't feel like I need to touch anything. Touch or no touch, the exhibit is still a new way to experience art. The art pieces may be on pedestals, but they're not out of reach. They invite the viewers in. For Audiophiles, I'm Sajina Shrestha. One of New York City's annual summer traditions, the New York City Triathlon, made its debut as a fall event this year. Among the nearly 1,800 contestants, a handful were wearing bright green and holding opposite ends of a small rope. These athletes and their able-bodied guides are part of an international organization called Achilles that helps people with disabilities participate in competitive sporting events. Reporter Safia Riddle spent time with an Achilles athlete as he trained for this year's triathlon and sent us this report. So I'm totally blind. Um, there's a lot of mental gymnastics that you do to keep yourself engaged and not go crazy. <laughs> My name is Francesco Magisano. My main sport is triathlon with a bit of marathon sprinkled in. Growing up, I never swam uh, and I never did any type of sports actually. So, you know, I was a guy in high school writing essays on soccer when all my friends were playing soccer. And so, you know, joining Achilles, that was the first time I, I ran a mile or even got in a swimming pool or biked. I count my strokes when I open water swim just to get a sense of time going by. 
Obviously, I don't see anything always, <laughs> but when I'm swimming, I don't hear anything either because my head's in the water. The hardest thing with that is just getting a sense of forward progress, right? Like I'd pop my head up every hour or so and just make sure that we were even going anywhere. Uh, and my guide would just tell me, you know, I just keep swimming. Don't worry about it. Right in three, two, one. Completely even ground right now. Sharp left in 20 yards. Back in February, I competed in this event called Ultraman. Uh, and it was, uh, it's a three-day Ultra Ironman triathlon, uh, 10K swim, uh, about 260 miles bike split across two days and then a double marathon. And so there's never been a person with a disability to do this. Tandem biking is easy, right? You have rental tandems with tourists renting them all, you know, in parks all around the world. Like it's not necessarily complicated to get started on a tandem, but there's a big difference between racing a tandem, you know, going downhill at 65 miles an hour and cornering 90 degree turns. Like it's a little bit different. Both people on the bike need to know how to how to lean, how to corner, how to properly stand and weight themselves and not tilt the bike too much. Like it, it's it's very much learning how to move your body and space in partnership with the other person that you're riding with. Good. Okay, little Sandy, three, two, one. Give me a left. Feet up. Good. Shot right in. I need to trust three. that when we're whipping this bike around a turn at 90 degrees at speed that my pilot knows how to corner and draw lines and good to, you know, take good apexes and all that. I need to trust that. And they need to trust that I'm not going to freak out and, you know, tilt my knee in a weird way and cause us to crash or whatever it is. So trust goes both ways. Communication goes both ways. Some of my guides that I met through Achilles are now some of my best friends in life. And like, I would do anything for them. They would do anything for me. I've actually never done an Olympic distance triathlon. I've done a ton of sprints, half Ironmans, full Ironmans, ultras, all that stuff. But I've never done a, a you know an Olymp uh, Olympic slash international distance. I looked at the competitor list. I think I I think I got a shot. That was Safia Riddle speaking with Francesco Magisano, who finished in second place in this year's NYC Triathlon in the category for physically challenged athletes. Five, six, seven, eight. Dancers and Queens hit the stage for the Queensboro Dance Festival last month, with 25 companies performing from all corners of the borough. Advocates say that bringing together dancers and queens remains an ongoing challenge. Reporter Kimberly Izar has more on why. It's opening night at the Queensboro Dance Festival, and Tomas Trinidad is ready to hit the stage. He loves how Yosakoi dancing makes him feel. He says it can move you in ways you don't need an explanation. You can feel it, you could see it, and you can, you know, learn things without having to, to speak the same language. Tomas has been dancing for more than 30 years. He started as a teenager when he was looking to connect with his Filipino-American heritage. Yes, I was raised by Filipino parents, and yes, I did know a lot about the culture, but performing it, I really felt a, a much deeper connection to my culture. And that became his entry point into learning about other cultural dances. And then eventually, I was introduced into this style of Yosakoi by my then-girlfriend, now-wife, um, and then I just fell in love with it. Yosakoi is a unique Japanese style of dance. The choreography is energetic. The performers are moving in sync, holding narukos, or Japanese percussive instruments that make clapping sounds. 
Now, Tomas and his wife co-direct Tente Komai, a dance team in Bayside. But he says finding resources that support dancers in his borough has been challenging. Most of the places that I found in Queens in the past, there were the, the hourlies are, are actually comparable to like the higher end studios in Manhattan. And so, you know, those costs can really add up. But dancers like Theo Q. Yang say affordability isn't the only problem. And also like the, the transportation being not consistent all the time makes it really, really hard. It was very hard for me to find um, resources. I have to always to go to the city, to Manhattan to find things. Theo's a contemporary dancer from Elmhurst, ready to hit the stage. Theo? Yes? Yes, hi, this is Carrie up in the booth. Dance is a lot of work and a labor of love for many. But for dancers in Queens, the odds can feel especially stacked against them. You know, for a lot of people, dancers, they dance for the love of it. It doesn't necessarily provide security that you can raise a family and buy a house with, you know, own a car, things like that. Transportation, lack of affordable rehearsal space. These were all issues that other dancers in Queens had experienced. Issues that Carisha Batan knows all too well. It is our season finale. It is opening night. Thank you guys so much for being here. How many of you have heard of Queensboro Dance Festival? Carisha is the brainchild behind the Queensboro Dance Festival. Um, To this point, we have presented over 150 Queens-based dance companies. I know most people are like, there's that many dance companies in Queens? There is that and more. And that is why we exist. She's also a mom and a dancer herself. And she shared during a call that the borough needed a space created by and for Queens dancers. Queens is the biggest borough. It's the most diverse borough. There, there must be stuff happening here, that, but why don't we know about it? She started knocking on doors, visiting dance studios to get a sense of the dance community in Queens. And she couldn't believe how much Queens had to offer. As we established the program, it was really demonstrating to me how culturally rich and the depth of the amount of dance culture that actually exists here. Dancers from India, Ecuador, and South Korea come together through the Queensboro Dance Festival. But Carisha says dancers still need more support. There was a lack of investment in building a Queens audience. You know, everybody's sort of used to in the city. You know, you go to Broadway and you see Broadway shows and you go to BAM and none of those are in Queens. Lisa Gold, executive director for the Asian American Arts Alliance, agrees. Resources, especially space, are very inequitably distributed across the city. Out of 125 organizations that received grants from the city's Cultural Development Fund in the current fiscal year, nearly half of those grantees were from Manhattan, and only 12% were from Queens. You know, there's a lot of funding for emerging visual artists. There's very, very few opportunities or, you know, dedicated funds for dance artists. Advocates have been pushing for a larger piece of the budget for the city's biggest borough. We cannot just like stand by and complain and hope that our government does the right thing for arts and culture. Like we have to be advocates, we have to vote, we have to be vocal. So, you guys ready for a show? This is Kimberly Izar reporting for Audio Files. It's fall here in New York, and Audiophiles reporter Amanda Carey McHugh 
did some thoroughly unscientific research to find out what apples New Yorkers like the best, as she ventured upstate to O'Neill's Orchard and Beacon Skiff Apple Orchards to talk to patrons. My favorite apple is a Honeycrisp. I like a Honeycrisp. My favorite apple is a Honeycrisp as well. A Honeycrisp. Gala? Gala. I like Macintosh. Macintosh. Granny Smith. Northern Spy. Uh, pretty much like the Cortlands. Cortland. Uh, the Cortlands have a good crunch to them. Gala apples, they're really like juicy and then, but also very sweet. Macintosh, I'd say, is like a very soft bite, you know, kind of mushy. I would describe a Honeycrisp as crisp and <laughs> sweet and delicious. It's perfect for pies. My wife makes a mean apple pie, so that's one of my favorites, but uh, as far as at the orchard, I kind of like to get the apple fritters. Those are pretty tasty. Definitely the sparkling cider. Probably the hard ciders. Like an apple crumble. My favorite apple product is probably apple juice. Personally, I love iPhones, but <laughs> um, I really like apple cider donuts. Um, I don't really have a favorite. I like them all. Honey crisp. Honey crisp. What is the what the, the <laughs> honey crisps? Honey crisps are my favorite. <laughs> Mine too. After nearly oh, thanks to Amanda Carey McHugh at O'Neill's Orchard and Beacon Skiff's Apple Orchard. After nearly five months on strike, the Writers Guild of America had reached a new contract deal late last month. Meanwhile, the actors' union SAG-AFTRA had been on strike since mid July. Here's a SAG-AFTRA picket line from soon after it all started. What do we want? When do we want it? The writers' union victory leaves room for speculation about how other unions in the entertainment industry will fare in their own contract negotiations. Faye Weichel works as a first assistant camera person and is an executive board member of the local 600 chapter of the International Alliance of Theatrical State Employees, also known as IATSE which is the union for the camera department for film and TV. In addition to efforts at the picket lines, they have been very vocal online and play an instrumental role in helping unions organize. Faye joins us now in the studio. Hello, Faye. Hey, thanks for having me. So first of all, tell us how you as a crew member have so far been impacted by the two strikes, the WGA and the SAG-AFTRA strikes. Well, there's, uh, you know, even before the strike started in 2023, there was a slowdown in work uh, in the fall of 2022. So that, you know, impacted there was simply less work. Um, and then as the strike went on, unfortunately, because there was no work, I lost my health insurance in July because that's how our, our health insurance works. It's based on how many hours worked. And then if you qualify, you know. Yeah. So have you seen others, including those who are non-union, be affected by the strikes? I mean, it's it's affecting the entire industry. Right. There's very, very few things shooting right now. Um, I, I think it's worth noting that it's one of the largest industries in America, and it's also one of our largest exports, and it's basically not working at the moment. Right. So how do you think the WGA's recent success will influence IATSE negotiations that are coming up in the spring? I think one of the most interesting things is that there's even been some um, – uh, even from the studio side, some expression that they're not happy with the situation on the AMTPP. And I think that cracks forming there is really an interesting uh, angle that could prove very useful. Right. Um, so what are some of the roadblocks that the strikes this year could pose for an, I an IATSE contract negotiations this or next year, rather? Right. Well, some of the issues are, you know, it's the standard things that we've had always been worried about, health care, uh, wages, safety issues, turnaround uh, for how long before we're apt to report back to set, things like that. And it's about not just keeping the gains we've made, but also improving on them, you know, maybe lessening the amount of hours so more people can get onto the health plan, things like that. Right. 
So in 2021, IATSE voted in favor of striking to get their demands met. Why do you think that didn't end up happening? And do you think it'll be any different this time around? I think one of the main reasons that IATSE didn't strike was one of the biggest things we were trying to do in that strike was uplift the script coordinators. And they got a 60% raise on that strike, which is something basically unheard of in the entertainment industry. And uh, I think you already talked about this a little bit, but what are some of the demands that are being made from, from IATSE for negotiations? Uh, well, those those demands are for currently uh, fomenting. Their committees are forming right. to figure and figure all those things out. We're going to go into negotiations next year in 2024, um, and those committees are closed. You know, we're not t- discussing in often ways union negotiations are. Right. Yeah. Those always end up being being kind of tough. Um, so it's it's up in the air whether whether SAG-AFTRA members in the gaming industry will strike. Uh, from my understanding, you don't really feel that they have much impact on the strike. And, and why do you think that? Well, the, the, the unfortunate fact is the video gaming industry is um, the largest segment of the entertainment industry that is currently non-unionized. And now that's something IATSE has been working to change since there's been gains in Marvel and uh, Disney for their VFX supervisors. And I think because... I work in mainly live action production and SAG-AFTRA and the writers are mostly in that. It's not going to affect IATSE because not too many IATSE crews are on union contracts within the video game industry. Right. Yeah, that's such a, a lucrative a lucrative thing. And it's kind of crazy that that they're not unionized. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been something that IATSE has been pushing for. They want to help unionize that industry, seeing the issues. You know, people have been talking about the crunch and also some of the um, bad uh, working environments, things at Blizzard, uh, Ubisoft, things like that with sexual allegations. Right, yeah, the like Blizzard that. things were a huge thing last exactly, time. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, so what other – there's so many different sub-industries in the entertainment industry, industry that uh, we can go into and we can. So um, <laughs> what, what sort of other avenues do you, do you see uh, this kind of wave of union strikes affecting? Like what other kind of entertainment workers do you see uh, also perhaps entering a picket line? I mean I think the – with, you know, Kaiser Permanente just went on strike today, um, 75,000 nurses across the country. We're seeing this across the – not even just the entertainment industry, but the in all of labor in America. People – you know, Starbucks – 10 years ago, the idea of Starbucks unionizing would have been laughed off. And now mo- a lot of Starbucks across the country are unionizing, something I thought I would never see. Right. You know, we are seeing an uptick in labor and people are realizing also their rights that they have to organize. Right. Um, which is something a lot of people are waking up to, which is uh, very exciting. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of chatter about uh, VFX artists in the industry mm-hmm. as well. Uh, do you do you see a potential strike uh, happening? Um, I don't know the finer details of the VFX mm-hmm. industry and how their um, what what their contract cycles are mm-hmm. on. Um, so I I unfortunately don't know them. Yeah. Um, so do you think uh, the AMPTP and for our listeners, that's the producers? Um, or do you think they are actually arguing in good faith for both IATSE and other unions? I think there was a, a sea change when right before the SAG struck, there was an article that came out in one of the trades. I think it was Variety. And one of the things that multiple studio heads said was basically let them go homeless. And I think that sort of took the mask off for a lot of people mm-hmm. and it helped people realize how some of these people who employ us think about us. Right. So Faye Weichel is the first assistant camera person and national executive board member of IATSE Local 600. You can follow them on Instagram at fweichel. That's at, that's at F-W-E-I-C-H-S-E-L. Faye, thank you so much for coming in to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. If I could be you. And you could be me. 
for just one hour. If you could find a way to get inside each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. The NYPD is on alert after the high holidays as concerns about anti-Semitic hate crimes lingers. Some New Yorkers have taken combating anti-Semitism into their own hands. Mayor Friedman of the Lubavitch Hasidic community does walking tours of the Crown Heights neighborhood to help educate people on Hasidic life. Amanda Carey McHugh of Audiophiles met with Mayor and joined one of his tours. All right, my name is Mayor. I think I mentioned that, but my name is Mayor. And this is my home. I'm the youngest of seven. You can see all my older siblings up on the wall. I'm standing inside of Mayor's home right now with a tour group of seven people, and he shows us the first floor. They're all married, and the rule in the house is when you get married, your picture goes up on the wall. So... They made it. We're still, <laughs> we're still not on the wall yet. <laughs> the first part of Mayor's tour has us gathering around a table to introduce ourselves and what brought us to the tour. All the while, we're eating his mother's traditional kosher blueberry coffee cake while his family passes through. It's my, my life mentor right here, my older brother. <laughs> Rabbi Friedman, who is both YouTube famous and Mayor's uncle, is standing by to answer any questions we may have about Hasidic life. Mayor says that the only bad question is the one that goes unasked. And this set the stage for the whole tour. What would you say is the role of the family in the community? Um, you just mentioned you're leveraging YouTube. Um, what role does <coughs> digitalization play in your daily life? Is it possible to join the community from the outside when, you're not, when you were not born into it? I think it's hard, right? You might have noticed that all of those accents are German. Mayer says that this is common, and the reason that's usually given by these tourists is that they all grow up learning about the Holocaust, but not about anything positive regarding Jewish life. This sentiment seems echoed by the whole group today. We never got to the good part, like how about the life, the culture, anything like that, that we don't really have. And then it's time. All right, with that, we're going to hit the streets of Crown Heights, okay? The walking tour brings us to a synagogue. Post office said that this address, 770 Eastern Parkway, got the second to most mail in the United States. Mm-hmm. Second, what was, first? what was the first? The White House. The White House, exactly. Yeshiva, which is a Jewish secondary school, a, lot. a kosher kitchen. As long as I'm not turning on the oven, everything's, everything is really cooked before the Sabbath. But GE, Everything is computerized. They put in a Sabbath mode. A scribe's office. There's little scrolls, and you see all these boxes on the wall? They're all mezuzahs and tefillin that are being checked over. A wig and a hat shop. But they look amazing. I mean, they really look like hair. It's worth it. I'm so so impressed. I've never seen such good wigs. Yeah. (laughs) And even Gombo's Bakery, where we retreated to complimentary rugala. Chocolate, cinnamon, regular. The Hasidic Brooklyn tours started nearly 10 years ago by Mayor's brother-in-law, Rabbi Yoni Katz. What started as a mission to build a bridge between incoming hipsters and the Hasidic community ended up becoming an award-winning exclusive Airbnb experience. On a Zoom call, Rabbi Katz recalls the excitement of the evolution of the tours, going from guests being mostly non-Hasidic Jewish people to now attracting people of all religious backgrounds. We had Mormons from 
Brigham Young University. We had Muslims from Lebanon, you name it. And they came into the synagogue. They came into our house. They came into the scribe. We showed them the ritual bath. And every day we got together and you got to see the best side of human beings. This openness that Mayer says is unique to the Crown Heights community surprises the whole tour group, like, well, including Lucy, an NYU student originally from China. I think the open community, the sense of open community that kind of, I think moved me in a sense. It doesn't divide us, it actually brings us more together. And that's the central purpose of the tour, to clear up stereotypes and misunderstandings as a way of helping people to realize that we're not so different after all. With Jewish hate crimes reaching all-time high levels in the U.S. this spring, maintaining this level of openness would seem like a brave move. But that doesn't bother Mayer. It depends, you know, how you would occupy your mind if you're going to sit there in fear, but it really doesn't affect the day-to-day life. That's the honest truth. So there might be an increase, and it's, it's, it's unnerving to see it every time you see another report or something, but life continues. Rabbi Katz says that the tours have evolved into one way to curb anti-Semitic bigotry. The idea is the more welcoming we are, the more open we are to each other and opening the doors of our neighborhood, that will reduce hate crimes. So it just proves to me it's more necessary than ever. Mayor said he hopes to scale this service and inspire other communities to build bridges in their neighborhoods as well. For Audiophiles, I'm Amanda Carey McHugh in Brooklyn, New York. The last couple of weeks have not been good for two of New York City's largest nonprofit newsrooms. WNYC and New York Public Radio says they're cutting 12% of its staff by the end of this week. And the city, that's the digital news organization launched in 2019, says it's experienced a $1.5 million shortfall in funding. No layoffs are planned for now, thanks to an agreement with staff to institute pay cuts through a state work share program, as well as the resignation of senior reporter Tom Robbins to shave off other potential cuts. Tom Robbins, who's been our own investigative reporter in residence here at CUNY since 2011, and who's perhaps best known for his tenure at The Village Voice, sat down with Audiophiles reporter Safia Riddle to discuss the state of local journalism in New York City. Let's just jump right in. I mean, I hate to be pessimistic, but what's at stake here if, you know, the city or WNYC doesn't pull through and recover in the way that everyone is hoping they will? The forces that came together to create the city... Uh, came together because there were people who understood that uh, local news didn't just matter in terms of you know giving people coverage of what was going on in their communities. It was crucial to the success of all the work that people were doing. So that impetus, you know, was was one of the things that that led to creating the city, as it did with a lot of other outlets that we have now. But the fight to get the money to them. That's one we haven't figured out yet. So actually, you left the Village Voice in 2011, over a decade now, under kind of similar circumstances. Uh, Here's a clip of how Democracy Now! covered the story at the time. Well, the Village Voice has lost two of its legendary muckraking reporters, Wayne Barrett and Tom Robbins. 
Barrett worked at The Voice for nearly four decades. He was fired as the weekly alternative was facing ongoing financial troubles. Tom Robbins, who first started working at The Village Voice in the 1980s, said he would quit the paper at the end of January in a show of solidarity with Wayne Barrett. You know, when I first got to The Village Voice, it was so thick with ads, you couldn't really fold it in half to tuck it under your arm. Uh, there was a line out the door on... on uh, our uh, Cooper Square, where the last offices of The Voice were uh, when I worked there, uh, people waiting to place their ads in the paper. And that line just completely disappeared in the paper. You could fold it not just in half, but in quarters and stick it in your back pocket by the time I left. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And that's very helpful in understanding kind of like how the city and local news got here. But how did you, Tom Robbins, get here? I, I got into the business of journalism late. After years of just doing various blue-collar jobs, I drove a taxi here in New York for many years in the early 1970s. And I had a job working for a community organization on what we called the Lower East Side. Some people call it the East Village. And, and I saw the devastation that was being obliterating parts of New York City's neighborhoods close up, especially down there. The landlord abandonment, fires, arson. Uh, demolition and I realized that there were all these community groups around New York who were stepping into the vacuum that city government which was facing a fiscal crisis had left they had basically defaulted on trying to provide for low-income neighborhoods and and it just seemed like something that needed more writing about you know And, and so I I had a friend who worked at a newspaper, and uh, he encouraged me. I wrote a few pieces for local newspapers, and and then uh, I managed to catch on with a couple local papers in Brooklyn. Uh, There wasn't a whole lot of money attached to it, but New York was a different place then, and you could, you know, rent was a lot lower, and and you could afford to work there. Is it hard to see issues that you care about and that you've spent, you know, decades writing about still make headlines? Um, for seemingly unending problems. I mean, I'm wondering, like, how do you, as someone who's been at this for decades, um, work through that and and measure progress? You just sort of try to push the rock uphill, you know, and sometimes it slides back down somewhat, but uh, it's the same, it's the same job. And, And I think you try to look for measurements of progress. I want to talk about Uh, how that perspective might apply to some of your most acclaimed work. In 2015, you did a piece with the Marshall Project that documented heinous abuse in Attica Prison in upstate New York, um, a prison that is infamous for having the largest uprising in U.S. history in 1971. So you were a Pulitzer Prize finalist for your piece. Can you reflect a bit more on the impact of that work or the work you do in the criminal justice system more broadly? They wouldn't let me tour Attica. They wouldn't, didn't want me to see what was going on in the cell block. But I did get a chance to sit down at length with the uh, commissioner at the time. He gave me a long interview. And, and I had documented at that point like just instances of brutality after brutality after brutality that clearly had been covered up and, and I asked the commissioner, don't you think that you have rogue officers on your payroll? And he said, of course we do. 
And he explained, look, when it comes down to when an incident takes place and there's nothing to record it, it's the word of an officer of the law versus someone convicted of breaking the law. And after that piece was published, it was a front-page piece in the Times, it got big play on a Sunday, the state corrections department began an effort to place cameras all over Attica. And uh, after that project was completed, the number of instances of uh, physical force, as they called them, plummeted. They just fell off a cliff. You know, after that happened, I said, put that on my tombstone. He got the cameras in Attica, you know. So, you know, you measure, you measure success in sometimes in small ways. I mean, given all you've said about incremental, meaningful changes that have resulted from your reporting, how do you see the future of local journalism and the type of work that you've devoted your life to? You know, I don't, I, I have not at all lost hope. I think that there will be ultimately a solution to this and that, you know, I think people want to read, people want to hear, um, and I think that uh, journalism will adapt. Tom Robbins, longtime investigative reporter, speaking to audiophiles Safia Riddle. In the past two years, there has been a push for chocolate outside of the three biggest companies, that being Mars, Nestle, and Hershey. Joy Batzahoff Thaler founded her company Coco Compassion with a vision of passion, purpose, and economic independence. Audiophiles' Rachel Goldman recently visited Thaler's chocolate shop in Dobbs Ferry and has this to report. All we do is through chocolate. That would be creating institutional change within a $100 billion industry that doesn't value cocoa farmers and product being made at origin. The injustices of colonialism. My name is Joy Badishop Thaler, and I'm the founder of Cocoa Compassion. Industrial chocolate is all about profit over people. It's about large volumes and making it as inexpensively as possible. Not thinking about the ecosystem. I became so curious about why all the chocolate was made or predominantly made in the U.S. and U.K., but it doesn't grow there. And when I had gotten to one story, which I think was just the pivot point for me, where children um, were working on harvesting and they were promised bicycles, and the story reflects that they were beaten with chains. When it started getting into this abuse, it triggered me. I can, and I think many people in society can recall feeling devalued um, because the institutional change that we want, it begins with structural change, and the structural change is us. And knowing I only wanted to sell product that was made at origin, they felt that the making it at origin was a, truly how one unravels 
it's a cross-Atlantic chocolate movement. And people from Cameroon to Uganda to Malawi, you know, they're all sharing information for the sake of community in order to make product and be part of a $100 billion supply chain. So they are taking back, in their words, what is rightfully theirs. So when we look at this $100 billion industry that we think of when we think of love, it's bittersweet. That was Joy batzehoff Thaler talking about the push against industrial chocolate. This story was produced by Rachel Goldman. Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. This is Audio Files. Advocates and lawmakers are in New York pushing Governor Hochul to sign a bill that allows innocent people who pleaded guilty to challenge their convictions. New York State has the third highest count of wrongful convictions in the country. Audio Files reporter Alex Crails went to a rally at City Hall where activists, exonerees, and other advocates are still fighting for their innocence. No justice, no peace. No no, no justice, no, no, no peace. Community members rallied outside City Hall holding signs demanding justice, standing alongside formerly incarcerated people, Union 1199 SEIU, The Innocence Project, and Vocal New York. They're calling on Governor Kathy Hochul to sign the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act into law. Thank you. Thank you. Hochul to stand with us yes. in the fight for justice. New York public advocate Jumani Williams spoke out on a bullhorn to the crowd about horrific impacts of incarceration has had on black and brown communities. 303 New Yorkers exonerated from crimes they didn't commit. That's 303 New Yorkers. That's just one state in a state where half of our counties haven't even exonerated anyone yet. Williams pleaded with the governor to sign the bill immediately. Governor Hochul, please, this is the least you can do. Imagine the impact on those 303 people, on their families, on their communities, on their friends, on their neighbors. If signed into law, innocent people who have pled guilty will be able to challenge their convictions. New York currently prevents people who have pled guilty from exoneration, even though we have one of the highest wrongful conviction rates in the United States. Serena Martin-Langori was previously incarcerated and separated from her children. The true travesty of a wrongful conviction for a mom is the direct impact it has on their children. You are less likely to have a paying wage job. You're less likely to have support in the community, and your children are going to be impacted. Ligori founded a reentry program called New Hour eight years ago to support women and children affected by incarceration. She spoke out about the importance of exoneration at the rally earlier this October. Latina myself, I can say nobody thinks about the children right. who's, who are being impacted because their mother will live with the stigma right. of a felony or a conviction on her record forever. That ain't right. That ain't right. That ain't right. That ain't right. Stephen Braithwaite served 31 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit and took a guilty plea. He is currently still fighting for his innocence. Currently, my case is in front of the Conviction Integrity Unit. 
And I think that's the problem, like, because they get to sit on these cases for years. We, we need another avenue. We're just hoping that the governor sign the bill. The bill has passed through the New York State Assembly this past March and is waiting on the Senate to follow suit. From City Hall, this is Alex Crails for Audiophiles. So, so. There are less than four years left before the city's 2027 deadline to shut down Rikers Island jail complex. The protests against building new replacement jails haven't stopped. Back in August, the Adams administration suggested that the city take another look at the plan as overcrowding continues to increase and complaints of prisoner abuse rise. Darren Mack is a formerly incarcerated activist and spokesperson for the Freedom Agenda, a member-led project dedicated to communities directly impacted by incarceration. He is speaking out about the human rights crisis and says Rikers can't be closed soon enough. Darren now joins me in the studio. Hello, Darren. Hello, and thank you for having me. Of course. So how has your time spent being incarcerated motivated you to get involved in the decarceration movement? Yeah, so my time, you know, I was on Rikers Island as a teenager when the population was over 20,000 people detained there. Uh, and then I, you know, unfortunately went upstate into the New York State prison system uh, at the dawn of the ending of education, higher education in prisons. But it was, you know, through the Bar Prison Initiative, which I'm an alumni of, you know, I got a chance to study movements, you know, across our country that moved our, you know, country and, and cities forward. And I got inspired by, you know, the labor movement with young women, immigrant women, you know, doing the Triangle Shirtworks Factory fire here in New York City uh, about the work they did to improve the labor conditions that we benefit from today. And that inspired me to 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 use my experience and story to move um, address mass incarceration. So there's been a lot of press on the mayor backtracking on the timeline to close Rikers. Do you think it'll really happen by the intended deadline? Yes, I believe it's going to happen. You know, we have most of city council, the Black Latino Asian Caucus, the Progressive Caucus, the Speaker, you know, the, the uh, four borough presidents, the public advocate, and, and you know, so many New Yorkers who, you know, put in a lot of work um, over the years to, to, to get the law legislation passed in 2019 to close Rikers by 2027. And now we just have to, you know, push this mayor to not just follow the law, but to make him understand that this is the morally right thing to do. And he's on the wrong side of history by dragging his feet with decarceration and closure. So the summer uh, has been known to be one of the hottest on record. Uh, can you expand on why you feel that the heat's impact on Rikers is a human rights issue? Yeah, like I, my experience on Rikers Island, you know, when it gets, if it's 90 degrees outside, then it's 110 degrees on the inside. You know, the walls be sweating. Most people, you know, stay in their boxer shorts, you know, all day long because of the heat. And, and, that, and that's not right. You know, even, you know, people need to understand that, over 90 percent of the people detained on Rikers Island are there pretrial. They have not been convicted of anything and they deserve to be treated like human beings. So that's the issue that, you know, there's no fixing Rikers. There's no reform in Rikers Island. The only solution immediately is, is decarceration, especially those who have mental health issues. You know, there's been a 40 percent rise of people with mental health issues since his may have been in office and he hasn't addressed that. So we need to, you know, decarcerate and move forward with closing Rikers Island. So you talked a bit about uh, mental health issues sort of exasperating a lot of the issues with Rikers. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah. Um, so 
It's about 6,000 people who are detained on Rikers Island right now. Half of that population has a mental health diagnosis, and about 90% of that you know, population that has a mental health diagnosis has serious mental health challenges. And, you know, when a mayor is, um, is asked about Rikers Island, he always brings up, the, you know, these numbers, but he hasn't done anything about it. In fact, you know, there was a criminal justice summit at Gracie Mansion with several um, criminal justice experts, all five DAs that made recommendations, you know, to the mayor on how to address this issue, and he hasn't lifted a finger. You know, he's just been paying lip service to investments in communities and really hasn't addressed, you know, the crisis at hand. 27 deaths since his mayor been in office, and he hasn't done anything to improve the situation. And you've talked a lot about decarceration and, and system transformation. Uh, what does that look like to you? Yeah, so, you know, we currently have 14 jails across our city, 10 of them are Rikers, the boat, which is scheduled to close, um, and, and, you know, and three other facilities within the boroughs are next to the courts, which is um, where most major cities, the jail is next to the court. So, you know, decarceration, like, you know, closing all 10 jails on Rikers Island and the boat, that's a 75% um, of of the footprint, the carceral footprint being decreased, uh, going from um, 17,000 beds across the city down to 3,800. That's the um, that's the the plan that's on the, that's been on the table, um, and we definitely advocating and organizing the city move forward with that, and, and addressing you know to not only address conditions of confinement, but for for people who are detained to have access to programming, uh, you know, better living spaces, better uh, uh, access and spaces for, you know, people to visit. So that's the plan that's on the table that we've been pushing for, advocating for, and we're hoping that, you know, the city and its mayor move forward with that. Right. So you talked a bit about uh, visitation spaces. Is there not a lot of space for, for relatives to visit? Yeah. So the current facilities that exist in the boroughs, like the Brooklyn House, the Queens House, the uh, the Manhattan Tombs, there's no programming space there, you know, in the current facilities. And that's why it's being demolished and replaced so it could have those things. There's, I know, I remember like every summer we would get complaints from people in the Brooklyn House facility about the heat because there's no air conditioning in the, in the facility. Um, likewise, in the wintertime, there's no adequate heating system in the facility. So we would have to protest and bring awareness to, um, to the situation in order for the, for the you know, uh, correctional officials to, to, to meet the best basic needs of those that are detained. And um, that's why the borough-based plan, you know, to address conditions of confinement has been in the forefront uh, of addressing this issue and the closure of Rikers Island. Right. That's absolutely crazy that there's no air conditioning, there's no heating. So these, these uh, incarcerated people are really exposed to the elements. Yeah, it's, 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 it's terrible. And it's been this way for so long. But thanks to advocates, you know, survivors of Rikers, their family members and our organizational allies and partners, you know, we built a grassroots movement so broad that it changed the hearts and minds of the New Yorkers to understand that Rikers Island couldn't be fixed, that it can't be reformed, that the only solution is decarceration and closure. All right. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Darren. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in to Audio Files. I'm your host, Nicholas Magrino. This show is produced by Amanda Carey McHugh. Aliyah Fisher is the associate producer. Our managing producer is Ashley Reed. Reporters for this episode were Rachel Goldman, Kim Izar, Alex Krails, Christian Nazario, Amanda Carey McHugh, Safia Riddle, and Sajina Shrestha. <laughs> <laughs>
Our editors are Maggie Freeling and Richard Yeah. Our sound engineer is Amber Watson and Chad Bernard. This episode featured music by Jason Shaw, Taiko Ito, Yosekoi Saran Festival, Ayazamana Dance Group, and Moise Production. Thank you to our guests, Nick Morgan, Mei Weichel, and Darren Mack. You can listen to more episodes of Audiophiles on audiophilespodcast.com. <laughs>